This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Ferox Mapback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the next episode of the TraumaCast. Thank you to my guests for meeting uh, early on a Saturday morning on short notice. Uh, but I wanted to host a TraumaCast on the recent explosion across uh, social media and in the uh, general media on the at This Is My Lane that has come across uh, regarding gun control, gun violence, and mass shootings over the past couple of weeks. I'm often going to take the other side. It's not necessarily my opinion, but I'm going to try to explore uh, both sides of the uh, argument. Likewise, everyone here who is speaking with us today is speaking on behalf of themselves, not their institutions. Um, go ahead and uh, I'd like everyone to introduce themselves. I have Alex, Stephanie, Jack, and Bobak with me. Uh, if you would just uh, tell us who you are and, and uh, where you're from, as much information as you'd like to share today. Uh, Alex, why don't we start with you? Yeah, hi. Good morning. It's Alex Eastman. I'm a trauma surgeon in Dallas, Texas. I spend a lot of time in Washington, D.C. as well. And um, I have some unusual parts of my job that uh, require me to be exposed to um, gun violence in a number of its forms, both uh, both before and after it reaches the hospital. So I'm glad to be here today. Carrie, thanks for having us. Sure, welcome. And Stephanie, can you tell us about yourself? Sure. I'm a trauma surgeon and an assistant professor of surgery at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School in Newark, New Jersey. Um, and I am also um, the uh, surveillance core director for the newly funded uh, New Jersey Center on Firearm Violence Research, and I run the hospital-based violence intervention program in Newark. Great, thank you. And that's uh, Stephanie Bonney. Yeah, I'm sure. Bobak, uh, tell us about yourself. Uh, so my name is Bob Aksarani. I'm the Chief of Trauma Surgery at George Washington University Hospital, and um, I've got a um, pretty um, vested interest in uh, research related to causes of death and opportunities uh, for mitigation of the risk of death in uh, both public uh, mass shooting events, as well as now we're looking increasingly at uh, non-mass shooting urban-related homicides. Great, thank you. And if you are a first-time listener, uh, Bobak is one of the um, East members who started the trauma cast. So I really appreciate you coming back and uh, joining us for this uh, important trauma cast. And uh, finally, uh, Jack Mather, if you'd uh, um, introduce yourself, it'd be great. Sure, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's really a a privilege and an honor for me to be on with this particular panel, since uh, all of these guys are really heroes of mine in the violence intervention world, and I'm I'm sort of just beginning to jump in. Uh, I am a trauma surgeon at a trauma center just outside of D.C. and work really extensively here with populations that are underserved and uh, and really involving ourselves in, in the community itself with a, a really robust violence intervention program that is really beginning to gain steam. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to be part of this. Thanks again for having me. All right. Uh, so before we get too deep into it, I wanted to kind of update our listeners on the timeline of what's been going on. If you have been living under a rock or been on trauma call for the past week, or if you're not active on Twitter, some of this might be coming um, as a surprise or unknown information. So the short story is on October 30th, the American College of Physicians released a position paper on um, gun control, essentially recommending universal background checks, um, regulation on purchase, ban on assault weapons, et cetera. The NRA calls this, quote, it reflects every anti-gunners public policy wish list. So in response, the NRA wrote their position paper. They released it on November 2nd. And their concerns are that the American College of Physicians wants to ban handguns. And the evidence that is supporting some of these decisions, the NRA claims is weak, including uh, examples of how the RAND Corporation evidence was exaggerated by the ACP. This didn't gain much traction until on November 7th, just hours before a mass shooting at the Borderline Bar and Grill in California, the NRA tweeted that self-important doctors should stay in their lane. They essentially handed us our tagline for organization uh, and response to gun injury, gun violence in our country. So I'd like to start with Stephanie. When did uh, this get your attention? Why are the physicians so enraged right now? Because this isn't the first time the NRA has said something offensive. And then how did you kind of rise to the surface as one of our physician leaders in this cause? 
well, I think it was um, <clears throat> it was really like an incensing tweet. I think that that the um, the reason we sort of all got um, riled up about it, and I and I actually don't. Um, I, I have a pretty like you know before this, I had a pretty good presence on social media, but I you know. I, I was busy. I was working in the ICU. I was on Twitter. And um, I think I was like in the elevator of the hospital and some, you know, my phone started buzzing a bunch and was, I was like, what's going on? And I looked and there was all this, you know, commotion on Twitter. So I went over and took a look and I was like, oh, come on. No, like they did not just say that. Um, And I was, uh, starting to, you know, post a, a little bit and and retweet a little bit. And it seemed I was sort of following what was going on. And it seemed like, you know, the first gut reaction was to say, you know, what do you mean? This isn't my lane. Like I live in this lane. This is this is exactly my life every single day. Um, and, you know, posting pictures um, of what it looks like to be in the hospital to help people sort of understand exactly what our lane looks like. The next day I was interviewing residency candidates, actually. And um, I was asked by uh, a friend and fellow researcher, um, Megan Rainey, who's an emergency medicine physician um, in Rhode Island at Brown, um, to help draft uh, a letter saying, like, you know, a sign-on letter, essentially for physicians to say, no, you know, this is our lane. um, And and this is why. And so, uh, you know, it was pretty, it was, pretty easy. It was a Google doc. We all edited it for a while and then she put it out there for signatures. And that's when it sort of, you know, both the signature letter and then the social media movement started to really take off. And then, you know, on Saturday I was rounding in the ICU and, you know, overnight there had been a lot of attention and I thought, you know, what, what can I do? Like, you know, within the confines of HIPAA, what can I sort of post that would be something that might get some attention. And I was walking out of the hospital and right at the emergency room door is our family waiting room. And I sort of turned and snapped a picture of the waiting room because I've been really, um, a lot of what I've talked about when it comes to why I feel so passionately about firearm injury in the past has been about my experience of having to go speak with families and tell them that someone's died, um, which I do more often for firearm injury than any other injury mechanism in my particular center. So I, I just sort of snapped a picture of that room and I, for whatever reason, it just, um, came across, it really struck a chord with people. Like this is lonely. This is a sort of a stark, awful place to hear that your loved one has died suddenly. And then, you know, on top of it, like I have a chair for this, you know, the same way that I have a chair to like, you know, eat dinner in and, and rock my kids to sleep in. I also have a chair to tell people that someone's died, which, um, you know, just like I have for all the routine things that I do in my life, which I think makes a real, a real statement of how often, um, we're dealing with this problem. I did see that on Saturday and then Saturday night, uh, I was on trauma call and I was heading into work. And when I looked at my Twitter feed, I saw Dave Morris's post and everyone welcome Dave. He's joined our conversation. He's one of my co-moderators. Hi, Dave. Thank you for coming. Um, And Dave posted a picture of some scrubs that were drenched with blood at the lower legs. um, And it just said hashtag bloody scrubs. And it was, I found it impactful. And Dave, I was wondering if you could kind of uh, share your perspective. Why why show that carnage? Like I see it every day. It didn't bother me. But some of the civilians were really taken by surprise at, at that picture. Yeah, I mean... I, I think I'm probably the last person that would anybody would ever accuse of being an advocate or an activist or anything. But um, I was I was kind of the same thing to, to Stephanie. I, I, I saw the tweet and it just seemed a little bit crazy to me that uh, that the NRA would try to dictate who, you know, who had anything to say about this topic. And and I just for some reason, I just thought, oh, you know what, like people need to see how intimately we're involved with this topic. And, and so, you know, I had this this photo that I thought this will this will kind of convey the message. And uh, so, same as Stephanie said, it just for, for whatever reason, it kind of struck a chord. And yeah, so I, I, I did not expect it to go as crazy as it did. But uh, but you never know what's going to what's going to affect people. That's true. I think one of the most important things about the hashtag bloody scrubs um, tagline is that we're starting to correct the perception of gun uh, gunshot wounds versus the actual reality. 
of what this looks like. Speaking of correcting uh, the perception, Jack uh, published a, a really compelling letter uh, to the mother of a gunshot victim I couldn't save in the Washington Post earlier this week. And Jack, can you tell us, um, you know, your perspective and what is the personal impact on physician wellness and what, what inspired you to send this letter to the Post? I really, now having been involved with, uh, you know, in-depth trauma care for a couple of years, it has become such a frustration to night after night be doing exactly what Stephanie just described, which is talking to families, seeing another gunshot victim come in, another gunshot victim come in. And then, you know, about six months ago or so, I started wondering to myself the impact on the families who we see quickly and then often never see again. And that was remarkable to me because we're such, we play such an important role in their life. You know, we're the face of their, of their child's death and then we're gone just like that. And I, I had a conversation with a mother and thought, you know, I really want to continue this communication. And I wrote a letter to her and started wondering to myself, well, maybe I should write a letter to every family member because you sort of begin to feel that way. And it's, 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 sort of, it's sort of therapeutic. But I was never able to find her. And I kind of held on to the letter, held on to the letter. And then, you know, when this thing started up and I started hearing about uh, um, the NRA's perspective and the, the stay in my lane thing, I thought this is exactly what people need to see. They need to see what's going on at the ground level. They need to see where the, the interaction really hits the road. Because these kids are all dying and really no one's paying attention. And we talk, even you mentioned the mass shootings earlier, but the reality is the mass shootings make the media. But what we see every single night are multiple deaths, you know, multiple kids being shot and they're, they're never even on the news anymore. And, and so this was sort of, a, uh, you know, I'd re I reached a bit of a tipping point and, and that's why I sent the, the, the piece into the, into the Washington Post, because people need to understand that the work that we do at the ground level is really where everything is taking place. And the conversations that you hear from politicians and from the pundits on the news are, I mean, I'd go so far to call them almost irrelevant because they just don't know what they're talking about. They're not seeing it every day. And so I'm hoping this podcast and, and all the work that, that these guys are doing and that I'm trying to do now as well will actually start to see some actual movement. Can I just add one thing about the whole sort of run up to this? Sure. I mean, I, I was watching this develop. And I was a bit dismayed because because I was actually part of the group from the ACS who, before the FAST team was formed, went to sit down and meet with the leadership of the NRA to try to find common ground. And I actually was joking before the meeting because I told Ronnie Stewart that I hoped that we had a sightseeing plan for D.C. because I thought this meeting would last just a few minutes. And in actuality, we ended up spending most of the day with the leadership of the NRA and actually building and finding some common ground. So I was particularly dismayed when I saw their tweet because it just seemed not only obviously uh, ludicrous, but it was a bit disingenuous because we had reached out to them and we had tried to, to come together where we could to make this country more safe. And so it felt like a bit of a slap in the face because, like I said, we had tried to reach out. and. Then, as it's developed over time, I mean, a lot of people have 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 gone back after the NRA um, after this. I, I I've told many people, you know, I, I want to go reach out and, and go over there and give someone a hug at their headquarters because, you know, and 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 write them a thank you note because no one I, I've seen no issue and no tweet and no, you know, no matter of substance that has united the house of medicine like this in the 20 or so years that i've been a part of it i mean you've got surgeons and internists and emergency physicians and gynecologists and radiologists and uh, the forensic pathologists all marching to the same beat right now which i think you know uh, is probably reportable in and of itself so uh, you know i hope that we we don't squander this this newfound unity um, and that and that exactly what you said, that we come up with some some meaningful motion forward. I would just add to that that I was I'm on the COT. And so I've heard a lot. I was not at that NRA meeting, but I've heard a lot about it. And I think there was a lot of real, um, you know, very genuine 
hope that the NRA was willing to come and sit at the table and create partnerships where we can propose meaningful public health solutions and bring their voice to the table about how we can develop public health solutions that don't infringe on the the Second Amendment rights and that really um, are respectful to the the concerns of their organization. And I think that, you know, when you put something that's like that, I mean, one of the first people I thought of when I saw that tweet was, you know, Dr. Cools and Dr. Stewart, who really worked hard to put that meeting together. And I thought, oh, man, this is just a punch in the gut to to them and to the folks on the COT who've been working really hard on this um, to try to um, find the common ground and and to just have that completely, you know, be disenfranchised from that organization, I thought was just really disrespectful. And I, I actually wondered, like, did somebody in the leadership um, approve this tweet? Or is this like some intern that just, um, you know, threw it up there on social media and without sort of thinking about what the repercussions and consequences were in terms of the bridges that we have been trying to build? Well, can I can I put that in perspective a little bit? If you sure. Wayne Lapierre, Wayne Lapierre, who's obviously the executive director of the NRA, in April uh, 2017, put out a gave a speech, put out a formal statement. He himself delivered the speech, where he identified. And I'm I'm quoting directly now: the three most dangerous voices in America, the academic elite. That's us. That is the people who want to do research in any aspect whatsoever of gun-related violence. The political elite, that would be anybody who wants to pass any form of legislation related to gun-related violence. And the media elite, that would be anybody in the mainstream media who says anything bad about guns whatsoever. So it really is not at all surprising the way things have morphed when the head of the NRA calls those three people out as the three most dangerous voices in America. And it's really the, the first one, the academic elite, that has completely and totally uh, ignited my desire to do research. Um, one, I believe in research. And number two, the fact that he specifically thinks my research is bad for this nation makes me want to do it that much more. So one thing that we could easily do is get a group of trauma surgeons together and we could just sit here and opine and muse and emote on what we deal with on a daily basis. And I didn't want to spend our 45 minutes of our trauma cast doing that. On that note, I want to switch into the next topic of let's talk about research because we keep saying research, research, research. But what does that exactly mean? Uh, in the mid-90s, the um, restrictions on research with uh, gun control uh, were enacted and really haven't been changed since. To me, uh, it seems that there's four broad categories of gun violence. There's urban violence, domestic violence, suicides, and then mass shootings. And I'm going to take accidental discharges and kind of put that to the side because it's, it's small. But the four main ones, urban, domestic, suicide, and mass shootings. Legislation has different effects on different categories. And, and one of the strongest arguments from the NRA, from their position paper, was that the evidence that we have as physicians or the American College of Physicians had was weak. So I'm going to throw this out to Bobak and Stephanie. All right, fine. If our evidence that we have so far is weak, what kind of research do we need to do? Um, so I actually think that there is um, real benefit into a better understanding of non-fatal injury. Um, so, I, you know, we're pretty good at counting up bodies and, and looking at death certificates. And the VDRS um, in the states that have it, and in almost all the states do, does a pretty good job of doing sort of a violence autopsy of the the circumstances surrounding violent death. Um, and if you talk to the people who work in the VDRS, I mean, it's it's really onerous. I mean, they they talk to doctors, they look back at medical records, they look at police reports, and they come up with a pretty pretty um, robust data system that that can identify the deaths. But we don't really have a uniform reporting. I mean, there's no uniform reporting system, and there's not really a uniform data collection system for non-fatal deaths. And so, you know, there was um, there was a, a paper at the AAST this year that was trying to quantify them and look at them. And I mean, just the fact that they had to go to like three different data sets and try to collate them, and one of those data sets was like, um, you know, basically crowdsourced data from from um, news reports and things like that. Like we just don't know what the burden of non-fatal injury is and what those um what the circumstances are that surround that. And I think if we had a better sense of that, then we would have a better sense of who's at risk 
you know, what are some of the strategies that we can use to, you know, deploy prevention solutions in those communities that are at risk or with those individuals who are at risk. And, you know, that that sort of moves us down the public health pathway. But, you know, the first the first step in public health, I mean, it goes from, you know, surveillance to, you know, program development to implementation. And we don't even have the surveillance piece um, really figured out adequately at this point. And the other interesting thing about the non-fatal injuries is that those are the people who are alive. Like you can't talk to a dead body about what happened to them and what the circumstances were around their shooting, but you can talk to the people who are living. So if we had a uniform way of identifying those individuals and being able to engage them and engage the survivors, I think that we might have a better idea of, of what some of the solutions are that we can start start working on. Yeah, I would uh, I would strongly agree with that. I think uh, a couple of things. One is we have really started our research efforts in an agnostic fashion. I fundamentally do not believe, neither does any of my research team, that assault rifles are worse than guns, that guns are worse than shotguns, that shotguns are better than assault rifles. We don't believe any of the stuff. We start with a clean slate and say, let's look at these events uh, by whatever way you want to look at it. You want to look at it in terms of those who died and those who did not die characteristic differences, you know, how could future events become less lethal? We can look at it by firearm type and say, truly, I say to you, is it is it true that assault weapons should all be banned or will it not make that much of a difference? Before we make these assumptions, let us look at the data. Yes, it is true that the data are weak, but they're weak by design because we have not been allowed to do research in this field. So we enter this thing completely agnostic. Now, I fully agree with what Stephanie just said. Um, looking at survivors is exceptionally difficult because you have to get IRB approval across multiple institutions. You have to get data use agreements. Those would be the lawyers amongst multiple in institutions. We have been working for almost one year now and trying to find and trying to set up a multi-center study to look at survivors of public mass shooting events. And after about 10 months of work, as I'm looking at my database right now, I have collected 46 patients. So um, we're gonna keep going at it, but it's very slow, very difficult because of the regulatory environment around it. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. That just means you have to be very patient and just keep trudging along. All right, we're gonna move on to our next topic. I'm gonna take the other side. Um, I've. Uh, researched the NRA's position. I have my own position. I've talked to my friends. I, just for perspective, live in Western Michigan, which is a purple to red-ish state. Um, I posted on Facebook yesterday that it is National Men Fall from Trees weekend because this is the start of hunting season. Uh, uh, November 15th is pretty much a national holiday in Michigan because that's when deer season starts. All right, so the first uh, opposition, I'm gonna throw it to Alex. My husband, Dan and I, we own nine guns. He's prior military. I'm a trauma surgeon. We're extremely safe. We're smart about our guns. And I would argue are the majority of gun owners in Michigan. So if some of the legislation that's being suggested is passed, why should I have to go through additional training, additional expense, classes, when we are so low risk of having any traumatic injury happen in my house? I think it's, uh, it's onerous. I think that you're kind of impinging on my ability to own a gun, which I've done for 25 years now. Well, Carrie, I think those are uh, those are all really good points, and I think the the here's where I, I think the American College of Surgeons has really come to the forefront of this and, and created a pretty rational argument. And, and the buzzword, you know, the the way to describe it, I think, is is continued freedom with recognized responsibility. And while you and I are probably in the same boat, I, I don't own multiple guns, but because of my job, I have multiple guns in my home or in my possession at any one point in time and, and, I, and I feel like I'm a pretty uh, safe responsible gun utilizer myself and, and however we still continue to see um, a, a significant amount of evidence that not everyone is and I think that's what we have to do is begin to reestablish our culture um, that there has to be some baseline education effort if you're going to be a responsible gun owner and 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 you may get swept up in that as someone who lives in Western Michigan and has been a gun utilizer for a long time. But I think that the idea is that, you know, freedom with responsibility, we, we want people to continue to be able to own firearms as, as guaranteed by, by the second amendment. 
but but we want you also to make sure you do it safely. You know, I'm sitting here, um, I'm uh, watching my son throw magnet tiles off of this bed in the hotel room, and he's four and a half. And I want him to, you know, grow up and be around for a long, long time. And so part of that, part of that, my responsibility is at this point in his life to to keep those things out of his, to keep, you know, weapons appropriately out of his hands. But, but, the, but, but in his future years, part of my responsibility is going to be to teach him how to be a responsible gun user because he's going to be around them his whole life as well. So... I think that the nature is, is freedom with responsibility, freedom with responsibility. So that's kind of what we're looking for. I would argue, and I, I'll, I'll throw this out to, uh, to anyone who wants to answer, since you're all trauma surgeons, the majority of the deaths we see in the trauma bay, the, the, these deaths that are inspiring all these bloody scrub pictures, the majority really are from victims of criminal violence. I trained in Baltimore uh, shortly after the riots, and what we saw was a lot of gunshot victims, but they were not victims of people who were law-abiding gun holders. This was gang violence. This was stuff going on in the streets. This was in the, the worst neighborhoods of Baltimore. So no matter what you do to me or ask me to do for all of these classes and laws and regulations, you're not going to have any impact on that. How, how can you recognize or reconcile the concept of, of imposing on law-abiding gun owners, and, and you think that's going to have some kind of impact on criminality. Well, Carrie, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, this is this is all multifaceted. And, you know, when you when you talk about that, you're really getting into aspects of, of gun control that really involve community management and learning to change culture in communities, which we do a lot of work with, uh, with uh, our violence intervention program out here, which we we resource people and, and really hire people who actually are involved in the communities. They go back into the communities and we try aggressively to reduce recidivism rates. That so we employ at our own practice somebody who himself victim of gun violence, himself in prison for a while, now works with us. And we have developed a really impressive symbiotic relationship where I will see trauma patients and I will manage them clinically and then transition them over to him where he then works with their um, PTSD and their position in their neighborhood and their community, works to get them out of bad situations. And the reverse is also true where he'll see patients in his office who then manifest clinical issues and I'll come see them in his office. And this sort of symbiotic relationship, I think, will prove over time to be very beneficial. And we're just beginning right now to start research endeavors where we're looking at recidivism rates, we're looking at um, improvements within these neighborhoods just based on our own interventions within them. And what kind of results are you seeing from this program? Well, so far we only have anecdotal stuff. We're all putting together research right now, but uh, I'll tell you that we've already, we had one kid who uh, had been shot three years in a row, each year he got shot again. And we finally found him uh, an uncle that lived out in Seattle and got him flown out there and he's doing quite well. Um, we have a couple of other stories of individuals who now actually work with this program who were in bad situations in their neighborhood, you know, were out of work and we found employment for them and got them back on their feet. And these, and, and then, you know, as a consequence of this, we see reductions, at least anecdotally right now in, in, in violence. You know, and the, the goal would be obviously to make these kind of programs more widespread as soon as we can demonstrate that they actually uh, they actually work. You know, we're also, um, this is very recent, only in the last month, we've actually had our violence uh, intervention specialists uh, go to speak at, uh, at some of the high schools in the area, uh, in the D.C. area as well. And we're, I mean, this is totally in, the, in its infancy, but really getting you know, the, the, I can go and speak to these children myself, but, you know, they really don't want to hear from the white kid from the affluent neighborhood, you know, and so having these violence intervention specialists go in totally changes the conversation and these kids open up to them and hear their stories. And I, you know, it's, it's anyone's guess whether or not that will that will help, but certainly it's it's a step, I think, in the right direction. Yeah, so I would just add that we have a program, the same model in Newark. Um, so it's, you know, these 
programs, the hospital-based violence intervention programs are, um, I think, really something that trauma surgeons can champion in their centers. Um, and there's a real opportunity here to to talk about um, violence and urban violence, domestic violence, all of these things in a real public health-based approach. Um, for for surgeons who are interested, um, you can go to nnhvip.org. That's the National Network of Hospital-Based Violence Intervention Programs. And they offer a lot of um, uh, information about how to start a program, about some of the data. If you're looking to train community health workers that can come in and work as violence intervention specialists, they have webinars and things like that. And then I would just direct everybody to the, um, the October 2017 um, American College of Surgeons Bulletin, where um, hospital-based violence intervention programs were highlighted, including a primer on how to start violence intervention programs in your center. We started one in Newark. Um, we've been up and running for about 16 months. Um, similar, uh, we've, um, you know, we have a lot of anecdotal data at this time. We've enrolled 100 patients, and some of our, you know, some of our stories are, you know, um, we do a lot of people finishing school, so we partner with a community organization that um, does GED um, work, so they train, um, you know, they do classes to prepare people to get their GEDs, and our violence intervention workers really stay with these patients for, you know, six months, a year, whatever it is that they need, um, following up with them, going to their, you know, their doctor's appointments with them. A lot of people were doing, you know, mental health appointments for PTSD. And it's hard. It's hard to go, you know, for patients to go and sit in a waiting room at a therapist's office for the first time. So, you know, having our intervention workers go there and 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 sit there with them and support them so that they don't get up and walk out of the waiting room. Um and, and it's hard for them to seek victim services um, that are available in the community. I mean, the community service navigation is hard to begin with, and then you put being injured on top of it, and it's almost impossible. So that's really what, what they're doing is, is they're acting as navigators for um, services that are available in the community. And the really successful programs are partnering with, with community organizations that are also trying to do um, primary violence prevention, so things like care violence and ceasefire type um, replication programs. And for our listeners, just to let you know, we will um, post both of those references on the east.org website under the TraumaCast uh, tag, as well as we'll uh, put it on our uh, Twittercast at east underscore uh, TraumaCast. So one broad category of um, gun uh, violence and, and uh, death is really is suicides. And I guess one question that I would like to pose to the group is how can gun regulation or legislation impact suicide from guns? I mean, either won't they do it anyway because there's so many guns on the market, you can get a gun anywhere, or won't they just commit suicide in a different manner? So I'll take this one. Um, so the data about suicide is pretty clear that, um, you know, upwards of 80 to you know, 80% or so of people who make a first suicide attempt don't make a second suicide attempt. So if they have less lethal means available to them the first time, they will get the help that they need and then not go on to make a second attempt. Um, and, you know, again, a lot, a lot of anecdotal data and, and things saying, you know, from suicide um, attempt survivors who say, yeah, if I had had a gun, I, I wouldn't have made it. But, you know, I didn't have one. So I, you know, tried some other means. It wasn't successful. And then I got the help that I need. There's also really good data. Um, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of data, but the, the data that we have um, is pretty compelling about lethal means restriction for um, depressed and suicidal individuals, particularly in the adolescent and elderly populations. So things like um, removing a gun from a home where there's you know, a depressed or suicidal adolescent can be a real lifesaver. And while there is definitely a role for policy here, you know, the public health approach involves both policy and messaging. 
And I think that it can be, you know, it can be really difficult to enact policies. I mean, certainly there can be policies that can be enacted that would um, provide lethal means restrictions in places, you know, for individuals. But how do you identify who's really suicidal or depressed? I think this is really where there's a role for messaging and to say to people and to families like, hey, if you're if you're a firearm owning family and you have an adolescent that you're having trouble with that you think is depressed or maybe is suicidal or you have an elderly person who is who has dementia or depression, you know, you don't have to get rid of your guns, but maybe just take them out of the house and store them somewhere else for a while. You know, take them to another family member's house, take them to a friend's house. You know, if you have an old person that has, you know, dementia or depression or is going through a rough time, they just lost their spouse or something like that, and they have a gun in the house, maybe just offer to, to take it to your house locked and unloaded and stored separately from the ammunition in your own home, of course. Um, and, uh, and you may save their life. Um, and I think, again, this is like where um, firearm safety organizations um, have done some really interesting things with this. There's been, um, there was a public service announcement that came out through an organization in Utah and it was aired at gun ranges where it was somebody in a gun range who was saying, hey, my friends recognize this and they took my gun away and I think they saved my life. So when you say lethal means restrictions, uh, that sounds very similar to kind of like the red flag law, which is uh, something that California has in effect um, and, and some other states where if uh, either police or family members are concerned about somebody, they essentially submit that there should be a petition to have the guns taken away either temporarily or permanently. Who, who should be overall, see who's the oversight on all of this? Like if I'm can I just say, hey, my neighbor should have his guns take away? Like, how do we kind of make this a, an actual thing that is enforced? Because we have a lot of legislation out there that could impact these groups of suicide, but they're not very easily or well enforced. Maybe, Alex, I don't know if you have some uh, so, insight. On that. So let me let me, let me let me take this one at, at the beginning. I mean, I, I, I don't have the right answers. I mean, obviously, you've got to preserve people's right to due process, and you've got to you know, it's going to be different in every state. I mean, the laws are different in every state, and this is a state rights issue, and, and, and it's got to stay that way. But but let me say this as a general principle. If you are mentally or physically unfit to be a parent, in every state in this country, you will get your kids taken from you, and no one says word one about that. You know, there's a process by which you go through, and we act to keep children safe and, and 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 everyone no one says man we ought to really not keep the children safe that's that's crazy so so for me the fact that if you even mention even temporarily taking someone's firearms away and people start flipping tables over and start tweeting and going crazy there's just a dichotomy to me that i don't understand the principles are very similar to me and as someone who's gone in and put people um it, it, you know under mandatory evaluation for their sometimes temporary psychiatric difficulties, that there's a process in place that this can work. But again, I mean, I think it, it goes back to, to, to a, a cultural shift um, it, that says, you know, we're taking this problem seriously across the country. And, and what I said um, a couple of days ago, I don't remember who I was talking to, but if, if, if 30,000 people a year were dying at the hands of Ebola virus. The, I promise you, multiple sections of this country would be in absolute crisis mode trying to figure out what to do about it. And it just doesn't seem like we've gotten to that point. And yet every year, year after year, we continue to lose essentially the same number of people to gun-related violence. And I'm not saying that it's not a complicated question and a complicated problem that that's going to not it's going to need more than sound bites and, and tweets to solve. Uh, and it's going to need, honestly, quite frankly, for, for all of the people listening, it's going to need more than a bunch of surgeons to solve. Um, but, but I think it's time to take those steps to move it forward. So on that note, let's talk about solutions. Uh, the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma has a Chicago census that's going to be published in uh, the Journal of American College of Surgeons shortly regarding the FAST team that was referenced earlier. This work group was 22 surgeons. 18 of them owned firearms with either expertise as a hunter, sport shooter, had a firearm for self-defense, law, law enforcement, or their prior military. 
five of these members of the work group were NRA members and four former NRA members. And the bottom line was that all are committed to preserving liberty while preventing firearm injury using evidence-based approach. And again, I hate to quote the NRA, but they give the laundry list of every anti-gunner's public policy wish list. And so the debate will continue. But I'm going to ask each of you, if you could give advice to anyone listening, what can each individual person do and what should overall our solutions be moving forward? And uh, Alex, we'll go ahead and start with you. Here's what I would say. This is a complicated problem. And it's a complicated problem that requires, in my opinion, novel solutions that we have not come up with yet. The interesting thing about, as I've been involved in this from both the policy and the advocacy standpoint so far, is that there's an incredible amount of common ground that exists in, I would say, the 80% of Americans that that sort of fall in the middle of this issue. And the 10% at each edge, you're never going to touch. But in the 80%, even though that person may not look or sound or act exactly like you, you can find some common ground. And so what I would say each individual can do is to go out and find someone who's totally different from them and have this conversation, build some consensus. And as we start to build that consensus among group, among individuals, then we build it among groups. And then we've got real progress because the, 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 the progress occurs as I'm learning, as I'm learning, the progress occurs in the middle at the common ground and the people among the fringes come together. Stephanie, what are your thoughts? What can each individual person do and what should we overall do? Um, I mean, I think that promoting firearm safety in your community and in your families and having these discussions, um, you know, I don't, I don't personally keep firearms in my home. Um, but I, I came from a family where, um, where there's, uh, I also grew up in Michigan. And so, you know, again, with deer hunting season being a national state holiday, um, I, I totally get it. And, um, you know, I, I was, um, we did this little um, bit on Dr. Oz about this the other day. And one of my cousins called me and said, you know, I want, I want to let you know that I took your other little cousins out to, to the backyard and we set up a little shooting range and we talked to them about safe handling and safe storage and how to, you know, handle the weapon properly and how to shoot it properly and how, you know, all of these things. And so like, that's a win, right? I mean, now we have two more, you know, they're like late teenagers who know about safe storage, who know about um, safety in their homes and understand this better. So I think, you know, just reaching out to your own circle and talking about, about safety and then talking about things like, you know, these are hard conversations to have about mental health and domestic violence and suicide. And when is the best time to have a fire and when isn't. Um, uh, I think it, these are these are important and hard conversations to have, but but start start where you are. Start in your own circle. I think as an organization and as a profession, um, really um, talking about what our research agenda should be about, you know, really drilling down on the public health approach and talking about, you know, surveillance program development and implementation and across, you know, primary, secondary and tertiary prevention. So, you know, primary prevention is going to be partnering with the communities and doing things like getting into high schools and talking. Um, secondary prevention, I, I think for us in our circle is really going to be about hospital-based violence intervention programs. Um, and then also talking about things like firearm, um, uh, you know, domestic violence and other situations that firearms can be involved. And tertiary prevention is really going to be about supporting survivors um, and and really um, lobbying for the resources to support our patients. So, you know, when you think about like the paralyzed patients and, and what do they need to have normal lives and start talking about things, um, really important things like palliative care and, and that to support the survivors of um, violence, I think is going to be things that are really, um, really important for us as a profession. And I think one thing you mentioned earlier was the non-fatal injury research, which is, that just seems huge because you're right. As trauma surgeons, we don't see the dead, but the dead are the easiest to categorize right now. The hard thing to categorize is everybody that we're seeing that survives it. And then what that sequelae means into their life 
for the next few months, years, decades, as well as how it impacts their family, their finances, all of it. Like it's it's quite an, uh, a big public health issue, the survivors. Yeah, I mean, the, the conservative estimates are 80,000 per year. The higher end estimates go up to maybe 200,000 per year. Um, so there's, it's definitely, you know, a big issue. And um, when people talk about, well, why can't we, you know, why don't we have this data? I mean, there's so many data sets um, that capture a piece of it, but they don't talk to each other. They, you know, collating them is incredibly difficult. This is basically my charge as part of the Firearm Injury Research Center in New Jersey, um, is to create that data set for our state. And it is like, it is crazy how difficult it is, um, because you have all, you know, you have the billing data sets, but not everybody uses the same billing data set. And you have hospital medical records, but those are onerous to go through. And not everybody's using an electronic medical record system. And then you have all of the criminal justice data sets. So, I mean, it's just, um, it's, it's just crazy how much there is out there. And then you have, you know, how many patients go to like an urgent care center with a graze wound to the foot or to the leg or something and they just get band-aids and go home? Like we don't need, we have no idea. It's just, it's just a ton and ton and ton of um, data out there that is almost impossible to, to sift through. It almost seems like we can create a national data registry like we've done with TQIP or NISQIP or things like that. Yeah, I would love that. Um, but I, you know, whether that again, that's that's where we have to step into policy and say, should we talk to our lawmakers about creating a policy um, that would compel a reporting system? And then one thing Alex had mentioned earlier is, is he said, you know, when the NRA published that tweet, they essentially united the House of Medicine with the um, kind of a tagline of at this is our lane or hashtag this is our lane. And I, I really am curious, do you really feel like we're united? Because when I look at the information that's out there, it seems like the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma has a view, American College of Physicians has a view, AAC has a view, East has a view. Like we, we are united, but fractured. So how do we all come together with the same force that the NRA comes together? Because they certainly are united under one voice. Can I, can I uh, comment on that, Carrie? I think that I think the way we come together understanding that our own members come from all sorts of backgrounds as well as um, um, their own views on the Second Amendment and the right to own guns and whatnot. So I think the way we come together is through information, through data. I mean, I completely echo um, Alex's opinions regarding the need to um, negotiate and compromise with the NRA and with all people in the country. But the way physicians come together and the way we make recommendations to the nation on its public health is through data. Now, it takes a long time. It's no different than the cigarette uh, issue that took decades uh, for us to resolve. But we have got to have research with that, that's well-designed, that gives us the information we need and allows us to put away our own inherent biases and also allows us to help educate those who have in turn their own inherent biases. We all come to the game with those, but understanding why people are dying from guns is not as simple as saying guns are bad. We need to understand what the causes of death are, homicide and suicide, and then target our strategies and our recommendations to those. And I like that you said that it's, it's not that we're saying guns are bad, because I feel when I have discussions with people about this as a trauma surgeon, what I'm trying to express to the civilian, which I, which I can't say articulately sometimes, is I, I don't want to take away your guns. As I said, I have guns. I like guns. Guns are great. But I don't want these people dead in my trauma bay night after night. And I'm not sure how to kind of make that argument in an articulate fashion without saying guns are bad. I think you have to respect people's freedom. You know, listen, I, cigarettes are bad, but I'm not about to say all cigarettes should be banned out of the country and a story. Um, so it's just not a good, we cannot start there. There's too many logistical barriers as well as there's this thing called the constitution that gives everyone the right to bear arms. So we have to get off of the guns are bad. We have to get rid of guns. That is not going to happen for a lot of reasons. With that in mind, let us look and see how we can mitigate the risk of gun-related violence 
uh, in different scenarios and then design public policy around it. Is it a fast solution? No, it will take decades, just like uh, all the other public policy, uh, public health issues that we have resolved have taken decades. But it will also take uh, money to look into this and dedicated researchers. What would your suggestion be to the individual listener right now, what they can do? Um, the individual listener, uh, who more, off, more likely than not is going to be one of us, right, given that this is a trauma cast, what I would love to, to partner up with you on, and I'm sure Stephanie feels the same way and the others on this call, are research. As I said, I've spent 10 months trying to align all the hospitals that have received public mass shooting uh, survivors, survivors, um, going back to about 2000 to date, aligning these IRBs and aligning these data use agreements is incredibly difficult. We don't have any funding whatsoever. And what I would love is to have a champion in each hospital um, who can help push this through. I would love to uh, partner up with uh, Orlando on the survivors of Pulse. I would love to partner up with the trauma centers that received wounded from the Las Vegas Route 91 event, so on and so forth. I mean, we could talk about this for days, right? I mean, there's so many facets of it, but I think, you know, talking about our, you know, public health approach and where trauma surgeons fit in all of this and, you know, really underscoring that, you know, what we are saying about we come from all different backgrounds. Um, but we see the same problem. And so we really are uniquely qualified to study this problem and uniquely qualified to to work on prevention. Um, we have the resources of, you know, these hospitals and these huge universities behind us, but we also have the contact with the patient population needed to do the research that has to be done. Well, it couldn't be uh, better said, Stephanie. Thank you very much. And really, thank you to our guests who are on today. Early morning on Saturday, I, in short notice, I, I appreciate it. I think it's a really important topic. I hope our listeners have come away with um, some uh, things that they can do on an individual level as well as encourage their institutions to do. As I said, we'll have some resources that will be posted on our Twitter account at East underscore TraumaCast. And then uh, we'll also post them on the East.org website. Everyone, thank you very much for joining the TraumaCast. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, Remember that all you need to do is look to the east.